Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. Glad you are here. Man, wasn't worship great this day? Yeah, Ooh, man, so good. Uh, for those of you who are new or maybe have never been to the vineyard, you might have noticed at the end of worship there, we just sort of took a left-hand turn. Hannah's starting to sing about like white flags of surrender or whatever. Uh, maybe maybe that's new for you. Uh, that's something that's pretty normal here at the vineyard. Um, one of the things that David says in the Psalms over and over again is sing a new song. And so sometimes sometimes we just, we take that quite literally. We just sing a new song of the Lord. They, Hannah and the band, they're just making that up. Worship is always this call and response. It's not as though we're just singing various words and melodies into, you know, the naked universe. Worship is always this exchange between us and God. And so oftentimes God wants to sing something back or say something back. And that's kind of what we experienced this morning. Uh, And that's really awesome. Uh, We don't want less of that. We want more of that. It's it's the realization that God is not the guy in the other room, but he's actually here. And, And we just, we want that. So... That's not, this, that's not today's message, but I just sort of wanted to bring that together for us because that might have been new for some people here. And don't want you going home confused. What's going on at the vineyard? They're singing stuff that's not on the page. Someone arrest them. All right, hey, if you want to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, and we're going to have a bit of a stream of consciousness morning. I really don't have any notes. Just going to talk about some stuff here. We're going to read from Luke twenty-four. We're going to read from chat. We're going to read from verse thirteen all the way to verse thirty-four. Pretty good chunk of scripture. It's one of my favorites. But before we do that, I want to set it up for you just a little bit. Uh, Jesus has at this point been crucified, buried, and resurrected, and. Some of the women folk have seen him, and some of the women folk have seen some angels, and they've gone back and told the guys, and none of the guys believe them. By the way, in all four Gospels, uh, the first people who see Jesus, the very first people who see the resurrected Lord, are always the women. The women are always the ones who get it, the men are never the ones who get it. Just let that settle for a moment. It remains largely true. In the church today, yet the church is largely led by men. This is actually probably not okay. Probably not okay. So the resurrected Lord is showing himself to women. They're the ones who inherently get it. They go back and tell the guys. The guys don't believe it. Um, and then it brings us to this story about two more, two more guys. We'll read it. We'll pick it up here in verse 13. It says this, That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. Man, why don't you underline that one in your Bible? How does that fit with your theology? I thought God wanted everybody to know about him. Well, here's a verse that says that he sometimes hides himself from you. Okay. Verse 17. This is Jesus, by the way. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? 
And they stopped short, sadness written across their faces. And then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. And this is my favorite part in the whole passage we're going to read this morning. What things? <laughs> like, like Jesus is way different than most of us think that he really is. He's a lot more fun. Some of us have this idea that Jesus is, you know, kind of a cosmic nice guy who keeps you out of hell, but ultimately he's pretty boring, right? No, Jesus is, he's obviously a troublemaker. What, what things? And they answer, well, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. I mean, you can only imagine this situation, right? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and the other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned by death, and they crucified him. By the way, religious people always get Jesus wrong. It's always the pastors and the priests who get Jesus wrong. And by the way, it's mostly true today. It makes me tremble. If you're a leader in the church, tremble. If anyone's going to get Jesus wrong, it'll be the pastors and it'll be the priests. If anybody's going to get Jesus right, it'll be the women, it'll be the weak, it'll be the leak. It'll, uh, the leak. <laughs> it'll be the weak, the women, the lost, uh, the broke, uh, the, the hurting, uh, the sick, the maim, the prostitute, and the thieves. Those are the people who get Jesus right consistently through the Gospels. All the professionals who are on staff, those are the guys who always get them wrong. Okay, back to the story. Then some of our women of our group were of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said that his body was missing, and that they've seen some angels and told them that Jesus is alive. And some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. And then Jesus said to them, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from the scriptures the things concerning himself. And by this time they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. And Jesus acted as if he's going on. But they begged him, Stay the night with us since it is getting late. And so he went home with them. This is an amazing part of the story as well. Uh, if you read the Gospels, every single time in the Gospels that someone invites Jesus to come with them or to come to their house, every single time he goes. The only thing that's keeping any of us in the room from having an encounter with the resurrected Lord probably is an invitation. Stay the night with us. It's getting late. So he went with them. Verse 30. And as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and he blessed it. And then he broke it and he gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment he disappeared. <laughs> and they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. Isn't this an amazing story? Amazing. It's amazing for like all, all kinds of different reasons. We probably won't be able to get to all of them today, but that's okay. Here's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about the very long walk with Jesus. Very long walk with Jesus. I, I know a lot of us in the room have heard that life is short. I know that a lot of us in the room have heard things like life is short. 
And I'm here to tell you that's mostly a lie. Life is not short. It's actually pretty long. It's actually pretty long. Now, the truth is nobody in the room is guaranteed anything. Uh, like, no one is, is, is guaranteed anything. Like, the truth is, you know, most of us in the room are probably going to be live, you know, live to be uh, well into our 70s, 80s, and some of us will be 90, and heck, some of us in the room might even be 100. Like, human longevity is increasing at an exponential rate that we just haven't seen. It's unbelievable. Uh, people are living longer and longer. And leading scientists uh, today tell us that within 50 years, it will be common common for uh, human beings to live to be 120 years old and to play tennis when they're 105 and look like they're look like they're in their early 50s because of some genetic breakthroughs that were about to happen the truth i know you've heard life is short the truth is life is long and it's about to get longer and if you're a disciple of jesus if you're someone who has put your faith and your trust in him the truth is uh, you're leaving you're living and you're leaning into eternity which is eternal days with god this idea that life is short is just it's just patently false and it could be i mean the truth is i mean I, don't get me wrong no one's guaranteed anything i could be hit by a bus next week but probably I won't. <laughs> Mostly because I avoid buses. <laughs> I, I may be going down, but it won't be like that. <laughs> See, life is long. And our journey with Jesus is not short. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because it takes a certain kind of lifestyle in order to be able to journey with Jesus and to make the long walk with Jesus. There are certain lifestyles which are sustainable in becoming a truly spiritual person. Uh, There are certain kinds of lifestyles that are conducive to being conformed to the image of of the Son of God, and then there's others that are not. So, for instance, we, I, we can't talk about all the other ones that are not conducive, but we can talk about a couple, just so you can kind of get your head around it. A couple kinds of lifestyle that are not conducive to being a spiritual person who, who, who makes the journey with Jesus and, and walks their life with Him. Uh, one is this idea of, of the spiritual life being mostly transaction-based. And you hear this stuff in church a lot of times, like, you know, you give God your crappy life and he gives you his great life and and i'm not saying that's not entirely true there's there's some truth to that you you give him your stuff he gives you his stuff but the problem with those kinds of images is is that it just becomes transactional as if god is some heavenly merchant and you just go over to his like heaven store and you buy the not going to hell ticket on the bus and and you know you get your ticket and then you just sort of you just sort of live the rest of your life any way you please. Like, you know, have you, how many of you in here have heard people talk about doing business with God? Like, well, well, I did business with God. Anyone ever heard that? Yeah, it's confounding to me. Like, oh, I did business with God. Like, well, meaning that, you know, I told him that I was a terrible person and I needed Jesus. You know, uh, I told him I didn't want to go to hell. That's what people mean when they say I, I did business with God. I just want to tell you, uh, the, the whole mindset, vernacular, talk, the speech, and everything that surrounds I did business with God makes me want to vomit. Because it's ultimately transactional as though you could have this one momentary interaction with God and then just sort of live the rest of your life 
who knows how, doing whatever you want, sort of mostly forgetting him. And then at the end of the day, you'd go to heaven and even be a person who likes it. Let me, let me say it this way. What if you just did a transaction with God and you got your, your heaven ticket and then, you know, you got your heaven ticket and you put it in a filing cabinet and you kept it for 70 years. And then when you were 95 years old, you died and you went to heaven and you didn't like it. I mean, some of us are thinking, well, of course you'll like it. Well, wait, 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 wait. But maybe not, right? Like, 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 like if you don't like him now, how will you like him later? If you don't like his ways now, how will you like him later? Like, what is, what is the line? So there's this idea that sometimes permeates especially American religion, especially American Southern Christianity. And it's this very transaction. Oh, I did business with God. Well, you should quit doing business with God. You should immediately stop doing business with God. God is not a merchant. He's your father. He doesn't want to sell you anything. He wants to give you everything. It's, this is profoundly different. Uh, then there's, there's another sort of motif that surrounds Southern American Christianity that I find particularly unhelpful. And, and it's this idea that it's this idea of, of, of not walking with Jesus, but like sprinting for Jesus. And you, have you met these people, the sprinter for Jesus people? Like, it's not just that there's some sort of holy urgency, but it's like, it's like, I'm the person who's going to save the world. Have you met that guy? I'm the guy. Like, I had an encounter with God, and I'm the guy who's going to save the world. And, and there's just all this, we got to do this, and we got to tell these people, and those people, and I'm going here, and I need your money, and we got to do this. We got to have worship for 78 hours straight, and then we'll preach for 27 hours, and then we'll get some people saved, and then, and then, and then we're going to do this, and then I'm going to get this team of people over here, and we're. We're like corralling networks. We're going to network. If we just network enough people together in apostolic alignment, then people will get to know God. Hogwash. Hogwash. You know the sprinters, right? Here's the problem with the sprinters. Life with Jesus is profoundly long and it cannot be sprinted. You cannot sprint the journey with Jesus. It will bury you. Train all you want. See, the sprinters are all about discipline. You know, if we just do this more, and you know, right? Any, any, any runner who's worth his salt trains, right? And they're just as if as if we could train ourselves into being conformed into the image of the Son of God. Come on, give me a break. So there's these. You can't do it. You you cannot you cannot speed up the processes of spiritual growth. You cannot speed up the processes of being conformed into a daughter and a son of Jesus. You are, and you are becoming a son of God and a daughter of God. Does this make sense? There are these ideas that are just very unhelpful. So what I want to talk to you this morning is I want to talk about the long walk with Jesus, and I want to talk to you about moving away from transactional ideas with God and sprinting for God. Like, like we're going to sprint. We're just going to run so hard with all of our urgency. We're going to create revival by our own effort. Hogwash. It's one of the reasons I love this story this morning. It starts with two followers of Jesus. These two guys, they're not a part of the 12. 
They're not a part of the apostolic circle. But there's this other band that surrounds Jesus through the Gospels. Lots of women, uh, lots of other men, people who followed him around, people who saw the miracles, people who saw him raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out devils, break bread. I, I love the breaking bread thing, you know? Jesus takes just a couple loaves of bread, he breaks it, he just distributes it. And, and, and the guys, the 12 guys who should have known best, the 12 guys who said there wasn't enough, they all have to go home holding a basket of not enough. I love that story. So these two guys, they saw this stuff, and they're walking back to their home in Emmaus, and they're walking back brokenhearted. These guys are followers of Jesus. So it's not as though they didn't know anything about Jesus. They knew some stuff. And so one of the things we see right, right away in the journey with Jesus, in the long walk with Jesus, is that what you know about Jesus isn't everything there is to know about Jesus. And sometimes what you do know about Jesus can actually keep you from what you need to know next about Jesus. These were followers. They knew some stuff. They saw it. They had first day and experience probably. They sat in the room. Could you imagine sitting in a room with Jesus teaching you rather than dumb old Pastor Adam? Mm. And these guys... These guys are going home brokenhearted because they can't imagine a guy who can break bread and multiply it for thousands. They can't imagine that a guy who can kick out devils, cleanse lepers, heal the sick, and raise the dead. They can't imagine that guy could ever be killed. See, sometimes what you actually do know about Jesus can keep you from the things you need to know next about Jesus. Um, one of the things about being a follower on the journey of Jesus is that whatever we know about him, we have to hold it lightly. It, it, it can be true. You can know something true. You, you, can, you can put your faith in it as something true. But we don't, grip, we don't grip knowledge or revelation that we have about God or from God tightly because as soon as you begin to hold on to something, grip it and hold it tightly, that is the very moment that God will begin to work in a way that you can't see and you don't understand. What does it mean to walk on the long journey with Jesus? It means that you and I have to remain uh, disciples who have a malleable heart, who can know something without at the same time ever becoming arrogant and saying, we know all that there is to know. God is infinite. You and I are, by definition, finite. He will always be capable of increasing our revelation of who he is and what he's about and what he's doing. And the very place that you and I think that we could never find God might be the place that he wants us to walk through in the journey. So for instance, one of the places that you find God, and, and some of us in here would rather not hear this, one of the very places that you will find Jesus most often is in pain, disappointment, and heartbreak. Pain, disappointment, and heartbreak. These two guys on the road to Emmaus, they're heartbroken. They thought that Jesus was the Messiah. And when he died, they thought, that, that project, we bet on the wrong horse. They thought that project has gotten, gotten set on fire. Not realizing, not realizing that in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their disappointment, and in the midst of their heartbreak, they were actually going to meet the resurrected Lord. 
See, here's the deal. If you have, if you have a Jesus, if you have a revelation of Jesus as healer, if you have a revelation of Jesus as victorious, if you have a revelation of Jesus as uh, problem solver, always winner, and if you grip it really tightly, you will miss the Jesus who's in the middle of pain, disappointment, and heartbreak. Jesus is with the losers. Jesus is with the broken. Jesus is with the nobodies. Jesus is with disappointed people. Right in the midst of the places where you thought something was going to work and it didn't. Right in the middle of the places where you were hoping for more and got a heck of a lot less, right, right there is a place where you can meet Jesus uh, if you don't sprint and if you don't, and if you don't just do transactions with God and forget him after the moment, if you'll just walk. You, you cannot sprint your way and into, an, into an increased revelation of who Jesus is. What are you guys discussing? What kind of things are you talking about? There are a few places that we find Jesus in our journey. As we walk. We find him in our disappointments. And we find him in our heartbreak. We find him in the places where we're hurt. Some of us this morning, we need to know that. Jesus is does not sit outside of heartbreak, disappointment, or pain. He enters into it. He enters into it. And, and sometimes, sometimes God will not take you around it. Sometimes he will take you to it and through it. I, I, just, I love this verse. I've been just thinking on it for two weeks. Verse 16. But God kept them from recognizing him. They're heartbreaking. They're heartbroken people they're on this walk back to their home just to go back to doing whatever they do Uh, jesus is with them but god keeps them from recognizing him why would god do that why would god do that well i think one of the reasons that god would do that is because the way in which you come to revelation is oftentimes just as important as the revelation that you get and god will not lead you God will not lead you to confusion, but he will oftentimes lead you through confusion. One of the, one of the walks that we don't realize oftentimes happens as disciples is uh, the, the disciples' walk is oftentimes into dark, into confusion, into pain, into, into discomfort, uh, into uh, chaos, and then right on through it. We're hoping that we, you know, that we get to take the detour route, and sometimes God does a detour route, but more times than not, the gospel story is death and resurrection going through. So sometimes God is showing up in ways that we just didn't know. And I love this in verse 16, but God kept them from recognizing him. I love it because it shows a couple things. Um, it, it also shows up again in verse 31 when Jesus is at the table and he, they break the bread and he, they recognize him and then he just disappears. All four gospels agree that after the resurrection, Jesus is doing this appearing and disappearing thing. Like in the Gospel of John, the guys are like, it says they're behind locked doors, and then Jesus just appears. It's like, what well, you all got to eat? That's what he says. He says, y'all got anything to eat? And Thomas is like, well, I'd like to put my hand in your... He's like, well, come on over. But Jesus is doing this appearing and disappearing thing, and he's doing it here. Uh, God is concealing people's eyes from being able to recognize him. Part of what the story 
is telling us is this, that Jesus is transitioning and has transitioned as the resurrected Lord. He has transitioned from being a man who is in one body at one place at one point in time to being a man who is everywhere. This is why this is why you can't sprint into an increased revelation of who God is because you might pass up the Jesus who's right under your nose. Right in those situations where your pain uh, and your disappointment is is overwhelming you, those can be blinders to the son of God who's standing right with you, maybe even talking to you. He's with us. God's he's with us right here. And then this afternoon when you leave, Jesus is going to ride home with you in the car. And then tomorrow at work when your boss is jerky, Jesus is going to be there. And then on Tuesday around the dinner table, Jesus is going to be there. And when you get a job promotion, Jesus will be there. And if, uh, if things don't go well, Jesus will be there. The question isn't, is Jesus there? The question is, can I see him? Do I recognize him? If you run too fast, if you make God a merchant, if we're just wheeling and dealing, if I'm sprinting, there's a really good chance I'm going to miss the Jesus who's with me. By the way, Jesus never offers us answers so much as he offers us his presence. A couple places you see Jesus here. You see him in, your, in the journey, on the long walk. Uh, you see him. You see him in the pain, and you see him in the disappointment. Where do we meet Jesus? In our journey, in the pain, in the disappointment. But we also see that we meet Jesus in the questions. These guys are talking about something. Jesus comes up and he says, "Hey, what are you guys talking about?" And they say, "Well, about Jesus and everything that happened in Jerusalem." He's like, "Well, what things?" One of the things that that Jesus is pointing out to us here is that the journey of faith is not always just a journey into more, more solid, solidly known pat answers, but it is oftentimes a journey into greater questions. Some of, us, some of us have this idea that the longer we walk with Jesus, the more answers we'll have and the more, the more just like, you know, I, I kind of know what's going on about life in general. And what I'm here to tell you as someone who's 37 and who's walked with God most of my life is this. I have more questions now as a 37-year-old man who's walked with God for more than most of my life, like basically all of my life. I have more questions now than I did 10 years ago. And they're bigger questions they're harder questions. They're harder questions. And this is one of the places that we meet Jesus. This is also one of the reasons why we can't do the math like this, that the spiritual life is increasingly uh, uh, increasingly devoid of questions. No, the spiritual life will actually bring bigger questions in because Jesus is invariably going to show up and do things that you didn't realize he was going to do. Some of, us, some of us have been told, well, you know, if you're, if you're a real disciple of Jesus, you, you just have faith. You know, quit asking questions and move on. I, I talked to someone a few months ago, and they told me a story about how when they were little, they always had questions. And their Sunday school teacher told them, you know, you just need to quit asking so many questions and have faith. That's the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. 
That's the worst thing I've ever heard. The journey of faith is oftentimes a journey into more and more and bigger and bigger questions. And can you, can you, can you inhabit that tension? Because if you can, that's the place that you will meet God. Jesus says, what are y'all talking about? I'm talking about all this stuff that happened in Jerusalem. He says, what things? See, walking with Jesus is not devoid of questions. Do you guys have questions about the way the world works? Anybody in here confused about how God can be absolutely good and at the same time terrible things can happen to good people and great things can happen to terrible people? Have you ever spent any time dwelling on that one? If you hadn't, you should. And if you haven't, you will. It's a really big one. Really big. See, you you think you get these little pat answers? Listen, the disciples' walk is not 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 a it's not a walk of just little pat answers of of, you know whatever, just you know let go and let God. What does that even mean? What I don't even know what that means. Like, let I don't know. What am I letting? What are we doing? We meet him in our journey. We meet him in our disappointments and our pain. We meet him in our questions. I mean, just this week, uh, many of you know that my little baby son, Rowan, he had to have oral surgery, right? He's just two years old. He had to have oral surgery, and they had to put him all the way under, like, like major anesthesia. And, of course, this is, of course, how it happens for us, you know. Before you have surgery, you know, you can't eat anything after midnight, right? And, you know, you go to the hospital early. And so we didn't let him have anything. We didn't let him have anything. We woke up the next morning and we get to the hospital at 7. I I figure he's going back at 7.30. No, he's not going back to about 9. And he's hungry. But he's 2, so you can't really explain. There's no reasoning with little kids, you know? I never understand when people get down and reason. There's no there's no reasoning with two year olds. You just you just turn on SpongeBob and hope for the best. <laughs> but anyway, so he's hungry. We're at this really terrible. Listen, hospitals. I I'm, I have mixed emotions. If if I spill my guts, take me. But you know, it's no place for people. It's it's <laughs> anyway. Anyway, so we're there, and you know. And they give him this, they're like, we're going to give him some silly juice before we take him back to do his anesthesia. And this will calm him down, right? I'm like, great, we need it. They finally come in with the silly juice. They give it to him. And sure enough, he's sitting in my lap. He just kind of goes limp. And he gets like this. And then he starts waving at Heather. He's, he's like, hey, mom. Hey, mom. That was like five minutes in. About eight minutes in, eight minutes in, he becomes possessed by silly juice. He wakes all the way up. And he starts punching me with closed fists and kicking his little feet. And then the doctors come and get him. And they, they take him down the hall. And he's screaming, I need my mom. <laughs> then they gave him some gas. And he like, you know, passed out. And they gave him their little IV. And they did terrible things to his mouth. And then he woke up from the gas and the anesthesia was like, he was back to punching people again. You know, he's like, and he tried to rip the IV out of his hand. 
what's the point? Oh, questions. Yes. <laughs> questions. So I don't always. I told you a stream of consciousness. Question. Yeah, so he has like jacked up teeth. Two years old. Like who has jacked up teeth at two years old, right? And, and what's even crazier than that is Heather and I knew that he had some jacked up teeth for about six months. And every single day, every single day, more than one time a day, she and I prayed for him. Lord, would you heal his teeth? Would you heal his mouth? Would you heal him, Lord? We believe in healing. Not only that, I don't just believe in healing. I've seen healing. I've seen brain tumors dissolve. I've seen dead people who are on death's door get up and live a normal life. I've seen crazy stuff. I've seen people who couldn't walk get out of a wheelchair. That was in Brazil. I've put my hand on a tumor that was the size of a softball and seen it dissolve immediately. I've seen crazy, crazy stuff. This is not stuff I've made up. This is actual and factual. I prayed for my boy every single day for six months, and at the end of it, he had to have silly juice that turned him into a devil and he had to have his mouth tore up and what do you do with that more questions see the disciples walk with jesus isn't into pat answers you know it isn't just god heals i believe god heals and then sometimes he doesn't and i don't get it and anyone who tries to tell you some pat answer about this or that, don't believe them. you got to live in the mystery. I have bigger questions now than ever. Like, why in the world would God not heal my two-year-old little son? Why would he not heal some two-year-old son? The guy who had a brain tumor here was a loser. He was a loser. And he got healed. He was not even a nice dude. He was not. He's not here anymore. He was not a nice dude. <laughs> He was not a nice guy, I'm telling you. He was becoming a nice guy. He, was, he met Jesus and he was, you know, slowly becoming a nice guy. But for the most part, he wasn't even a nice guy. He wasn't nice to anybody. And some kids, like 10 little 8-year-old kids, put their head, hands on his head and he had a brain tumor dissolve. And not only, and that's not just somebody's story. I've seen the MRI. He had an MRI on Wednesday and he had an MRI on the following Wednesday. That was about six years ago here at the Vineyard. And I've seen them back to back. And the doctor said, we don't have a clue what happened to you. He's like, I got healed. The jerk gets healed. And my two-year-old innocent little son, who's the joy of my heart, has to go and turn into a crazy person with medical interventions. I said, I have bigger questions. And at the same time, I believe that God is ultimately entirely good. You cannot sprint your way through these moments. You just have to walk with him. Does this make sense? Listen, everything that you know about God, everything that you can say about God, everything that can be said about the kingdom can in some ways probably be unsaid about the kingdom. And it just creates massive questions, massive questions. And you can't run past them. You have to walk with Jesus through them. We meet him in our journey. We meet him in our questions. We meet him in our disappointment. And we also meet him in our conversations. I just love this idea these, are, these last couple of things are very, very practical. I love these guys are disappointed, they're heartbroken, and they're just walking back home. And Jesus shows up, but they're, they're just talking to one another. And what are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus. How, how many of you have ever noticed that if you get together with a friend or two and you begin to talk about Jesus, that the Jesus you're talking about shows up with you? This is so important. We, we talk about something here at the Vineyard quite a lot. We talk about you know, living a shared life together. This isn't just, this isn't just like poetry, like poetic, you know, Bible preacher man stuff. This is actually, this is how you live the spiritual life. We got to share life together, but we can't just share breathing together. We can't just share, you know, hanging out together. We have to share 
a conversation about Jesus. We have to have we have to have friendships and relationships and spaces where we can be open and honest about our pain, our difficulties, our disappointments, and where we can talk about God. What's God doing in your life? What's God doing in your life? What are you having going on? What are you doing? How's God coming? How is He not coming? What is what is clearer? What's what's less clear? These conversations, there's something about it. Jesus comes and he stands in the middle of it. And before long, you become aware of a presence that was there all along simply by talking about him. I can't tell you how many times we've been at my house. We've been at my house, maybe around my long oak table in the kitchen. And we begin to just turn our attention to God and, and talk about him a little bit. And the next thing you know, there's just this powerful presence of God that's with us. The journey, the journey with Jesus is one where we share life and share conversation about him. Now, this is instructive because how many of you understand that it's really hard to talk when you're running? Last week, last week, River, we were on vacation down in Florida and we were in, we were in Pensacola which is really beautiful, but we were on the end of the island that's like massively beautiful. The, the water is so blue. It, it's, it's more blue than your dress. You know, it's just, it's some, it's some otherworldly color. You know, I don't even know what this is. There's all these creatures out there. Uh, we saw sharks and manta rays and dolphins and little fish and medium-sized fish and, and, and things that would certainly eat you. <laughs> we saw Birds, they have like these little birds that live out on that island that are like endangered or something. There's just all this natural beauty. But every morning while we were on vacation, River and I, we went for about a three and a half mile run. Now, I'm not in particularly great shape. I I can do that, but I'm not in particularly great shape. It takes a lot of my focus. My son is much stronger and faster and more proficient than I am. He, He pressed me. Anyway, uh, maybe many of you know what I'm talking about here, but there's something that happens when you when you take off running. When you take off running, at, at, at first you're like, this, is, this, is, this isn't bad. Everyone should do this, you know? Why is anyone not healthy, you know? And then somewhere about a half mile in, your body goes, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> It's like this internal conversation. There's like Adam, and then there's like, there's like Adam's Adam. I don't know how to describe this. There's many of me inside. And, and Adam's Adam, who's a little bit bigger than everyone else inside of me, says, hey, we really got to stop this. You know, I mean, it's like I'm hungry. And um, hey, I don't know if you've noticed, but the calves are burning. Calves are burning. Knees hurt. You know? And then, and then all of the other Adams have to gang up on Adam's Adam and, you know, Oh, we're doing this for our health. We're doing this for our health. We just, we just keep going. Just, you know, breathe, breathe. Tell the one guy to breathe, you know. And all of my body is working for me and against me. It's really strange. Am I the only one? You know what I'm talking about, right? It takes all of your focus to keep running. You just, you're, you're running and you're just like, God. And, and by a mile in, you're, by a mile in, you're like, the only thing I can do, the only thing I can do is just tell myself that at the end of this, there's sausage. You know, it's, I'm running for sausage. 
And, and so we do this for three and a half miles. And there's, there's this really profound thing that happens. And, and I think most of you know what I'm talking about. When you're running like that, how many of you understand that if you're running more than like eight yards, you, <laughs> you, you can't talk? Right? River and I, would, we would talk on the, on the way, on the elevator on the way down. And then we would talk through the lobby. We would stand out front, you know, where the bellhop guy takes everybody's bags. We'd stand out front. We would look very cool, you know, to our stretches, you know. (laughs) You know, we're chatting, you know, it's early in the morning. It's like 6.30. We're doing our thing. We look pretty incredible. You know, 200 yards down the road. There's no talking anymore. It's just survival. I'm thinking, I don't want to be buried by a (laughs) 13-year-old. Why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing it up because you, you can't have you can't have the life-giving conversations that make you aware of the presence of God if you're sprinting the journey with Jesus. You, you, you can't do it. Like, like if, it, if everything is your own effort, if there's so much urgency on top of your spiritual life that you're driven to this and you're just driven to that, it will... Let me put it this way. How many of you have ever met the dude, the dude who talks at you? You know that guy? You know, he's talking at you and he might even be talking at you about like the great things in God, like something he's excited about or whatever. Or the, or, do you all know what I'm talking about? It's like, words are happening, but we, we're not sharing. Do you know what I mean? Isn't that the worst? It's the worst. And the life, the life that we have, it's not in the words. It's in the sharing. It's in the sharing. See, what, when you get somebody who's talking at you and not with you, what you have is you've got somebody who's trying to sprint the long journey of Jesus. And they are making connection and the space that Jesus inhabits, they're making it impossible to see him or know him. And, and you're just getting bombarded. And then what you also probably need to do is start praying for that person because if something doesn't change, they're going to bonk out. You know? I mean, people run. People can run for three and a half miles. They do it all the time. Uh, people can even run for 26 miles. And there's even these really bizarre people. Have you guys heard of these like uh, hyper marathons? You know what I'm talking? The dudes who run for, literally they run marathons that are o- over 50 miles. I have friends who do these crazy marathons in Montana. They run 75 miles in the mountains at one time. Here's the deal. You can run more than three and a half miles. You won't talk and you won't share. You can run 50 miles. And if you're an extremely disciplined person with above average lung capacity, you might even be able to run 70 or 75 miles. But there is a moment when all the little people inside of you will gang up and make you stop. Stop it. What? You, 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 cannot, you cannot sprint your life in Jesus. You can sprint for a while. People will think that you're super spiritual. People will think that you are a triathlete in Jesus. And eventually you will wear out. And by the way, you can read the Gospels. This is really important. You can read the Gospels. Not one time, not one time does Jesus run to anything or to anyone or for any reason. Jesus only walks. 
That was almost a Kanye reference. <laughs> I got to bring Kanye back. Y'all remember when I was doing Kanye every Sunday? I'm bringing him back next Sunday. Mark it down. <laughs> so we meet him in our journey. We meet him in our questions. We meet him in our disappointment. We meet him in our conversations. And, and you can't sprint and have conversations that matter. And then finally, we meet him around our table. Look, look at this. Verse 30, as they sat down to eat, he took bread and blessed it, and he broke it and gave it to them, and suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Jesus is almost always doing some of his best work around a table and with food. Here we have it, Luke chapter 24. At the end of the Gospel of John, um, Jesus, this is John 21, Jesus is on the beach and the guys are out fishing. They're not sure what to make of this whole resurrection thing totally yet. And Jesus is on the beach. John looks at Peter and says, hey, it's the Lord. Peter puts his clothes on, jumps in the water, makes a hundred yard swim. And when he gets to the beach, what he finds out is that Jesus has a fire and he's cooked breakfast. And all the other disciples come over and Jesus has already prepared breakfast. And around a fire and around breakfast, Jesus looks at Peter who has denied him three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? He says, well, you know I love you. He says, well, feed my sheep. And then Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, well, you know I love you, Jesus. And he says, well, why don't you care for my lambs? And then around a fire and with some fish, Jesus says a third time to the guy who denies him three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. He says, well, feed my sheep. Jesus is oftentimes doing his best work around a meal and at a table. Jesus' restorative work is always around a meal and at a table. Uh, Jesus' revelatory work for these guys right here is at a meal around a table. When Jesus shows the disciples in John chapter 13 that the Lord came to serve and not to be served, it was at a meal around a table. That's the Last Supper. Jesus takes off his outer garments. He gets on his hands and knees and he says, Hey, this, I know this isn't the way it's done in the real world, but in the real, real world, in the kingdom of heaven, the greatest get down and serve. And Jesus, Jesus is always doing his best stuff. Mary Magdalene comes into a meal that was given to Jesus in his honor. And she pours the oil on his feet. And everyone's like, No, dude, this is not okay. And Jesus says, Hey, what she did for me is beautiful and it'll be remembered. All of these amazing moments are happening around food and it's happening around drink and it's happening around a table. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding at a feast, right? He turns water into wine for people who have already had too much to drink. Let that one sink in for a minute. He made 180 gallons of wine for people who had already had too much to drink. What kind of Jesus are we dealing with? Not the one you thought. What's the point? The point is, the point is, there is something about, there's something about food, and there's something about life, and there's something about drink that is sustaining and is pleasurable, and Jesus will always enter into those things. Uh, food and drink are simply shadows and types of the reality that is Jesus. And so there's something about when we gather around tables, God is there. Like, like at your family dinner. This is why family dinner is so important. Your family dinner is so important. Uh, hanging out with friends around a table and, and sharing conversations about Jesus. This is not just benign spiritual activity. This might be the very best thing you could do. That might be the 
best place where God could show up. In fact, he often does. And I could tell you stories for the next four hours about God breaking into our home around our oak table doing amazing things. Jesus is always doing his best work. The kingdom of heaven is a feast. The kingdom of heaven is sustaining and it is pleasurable, just like food and drink. How many of y'all understand that eating and drinking is really fun? It's like the best, right? When it's right, it's like the best. It's the best. Jesus says, you know what? I'm entering into that. My kingdom is sustaining, but it is not just sustaining. It is also pleasure. It is, it is, it is, it is abundance. It, it, it will keep you. And, and, and listen, listen, uh, the kind of life that Jesus is talking about, you can't sprint dinner. You cannot sprint a good dinner. You, the good stuff takes a while. Listen, you come to my house and if my wife makes you, if my wife loves you and makes you, if she makes you some, like a braised beef, you guys, you know, like you guys know what braising is? When you, when you get like a cast iron pot and you, you put some garlic and some onions and some olive oil and, and you, let, you sweat that junk out and then you put that beef in there and you sear it until it's crusty on the outside and then you pour a half a bottle of wine in there and you put all these herbs and you put in some carrots and some potatoes and you put the pot, you put the top on it and you put it in the oven and you come back four hours later, you get something that's otherworldly. I mean, it makes bitter people happy. People who have daddy wounds just come over. They just get. People with terrible parents come to my house and they eat one bite of my wife's braised beef and they think, you know, it wasn't that bad. (laughs) Why? Why is that? Listen, you cannot sprint dinner. You cannot. You cannot make something amazing in 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 three minutes. You 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 might be able to run a a four minute mile, but you cannot make a life changing dinner in three minutes. Let me tell you right now. There's something about it. Jesus is offering us a pace of life and and the elements of life which are sustaining and build us into the kind of people who can be conformed into the Son of God. Does this make sense? Yes. Good. Close with this. Nobody in the story today, nobody who runs gets a revelation of the resurrected Lord because they were running. Right before this little encounter, The women come back from the tomb and they tell the disciples he ain't there. And it says that Peter takes off running. John confirms this as well. Gospel of John. Peter and John run to the tomb. In the Gospel of John, we find out that John actually beat him there because he's younger. He beats him. They run to the tomb and here's what they find. They find find a tomb and they find the burial clothes wrapped up. But no Jesus. So they get the facts without the context required to actually understand what it is. And the context required what actually has happened is the resurrected Lord himself. No one in any Gospels gets a revelation of the resurrected Lord by running because they ran. Everyone who gets a revelation of the resurrected Lord walks. These two guys, they walk. Jesus comes alongside them. Later in in Luke chapter 24, immediately following the road to Emmaus, Peter finally gets a revelation of the resurrected Lord only when he is at home sitting with the other disciples. The one who runs, there's something about the anxiety, the focus, the determination of running running spiritually that will actually blind you to the resurrected Lord. There's something about the peace 
and the sustainability and the longevity and the quiet confidence and the shared life, the conversations, entering into the pain, not going around, conversations, questions. There's something about this. There's something about a table. There's something about food and drink that slows people down to where they could actually have an encounter with God. Does that make sense? This is for us. This is for us. Why don't you stand this morning? And if you're on the ministry team, why don't you come on up? <coughs> All right, let's wait on the Lord just for a second. Oh, we just love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. God, we ask that you would deliver us from sprinting, from religious notions of making stuff happen. welcome you here. God, we ask that you would cause all of us to become men and women who are comfortable walking with you. Step by step. God, we ask that you would cause all of us in the room to become men and women who at the end of our lives have not become exhausted with Jesus, who have not become exhausted in the spiritual life, but have step by step been conformed to the image of your son. Father, we ask this morning that we would become men and women who, who live our life well and in 20 years still love you, in 30 years still love you, in 40 years still love you, not less, but more through the pain, through the questions, through the suffering, through everything. God, we ask for that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thanks, Lord. Hey, before we go, uh, does anybody here have a heart issue that the Lord needs to touch? I just, while, we were, while I was talking, I felt like maybe the Lord wanted to touch heart issue. Okay. All right, I want to pray for you. Yeah, anybody else? I felt like the Lord wanted. Okay, okay, a couple of you. Uh, after after we're done here, just come up, and these people want to pray for you. That was just a word of knowledge. I just got a little impression while I was talking this morning that the Lord wanted to heal maybe a heart issue. Maybe He does. Otherwise, give somebody a high five and a hug. The mass is ended. Go in peace. If you need prayer for anything, come up to these people right here. They want to stand with you. And if you're coming for newcomers lunch, wait for seven minutes and then we're going to go eat. Woohoo!